Good morning, church. So great to see you on this holiday weekend. Thank you for joining us, whether you're joining us in person or online. So glad to have you with us. You know, as I look back, the American Civil War was the most devastating and destructive war in the history of the United States. It began in April of 1861, and it lasted for 49 months and concluded in May of 1865, actually on my birthday. And so it lasted a long, 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 long time. There were over three million individuals that fought in the Civil War. Of those three million, nearly 600,000 people gave their life. So 20% of those who fought in the war gave their life for their battle. Now you look back at the history of the United States, we're celebrating our independence this weekend. We have been as a nation in a lot of different disagreements, a lot of different wars, a lot of different battles, a lot of different conflicts. But there, are no, there is nothing that compares to the Civil War the amount of pain and the amount of destruction. Because out of all those other battles, they don't compare to the battle that America had with itself, an internal struggle, an internal battle. You know, even as I say that, maybe you are in a very similar situation. You have a lot of different battles in your life, a lot of different things that you struggle with, a lot of different relationships. But as you look at your life, you can relate. Your biggest, your greatest, your most destructive times are when you have a battle in your head, a battle with yourself. It might be with fear, with anxiety, with doubt. You might even battle depression, the battle within. You know, the other thing is, it might not even be those big, giant things that rule our life. There are other things that you probably, and I've struggled with throughout my life. From the very beginning of a day, you start the internal battles. The alarm goes off on that early morning. The battle begins. Oh, do I hit that snooze button? Do I turn it off? Do I sleep through it? Whatever that looks like, the battle for your day has begun. Maybe you have an internal battle for working out and staying fit and healthy. I mean, you've got all the things. You've got the gym membership. You're a member over at the CLC. You've got the gym bag, the shoes. You've got the cute clothes. You're ready to go. You know what you need to do, but you don't always do it, and you drive right by. I remember that month that I worked out a few years ago. It was a, str <laughs> it was a struggle for me. I did. I powered through it. It was an amazing month in my life. Maybe your battle is eating healthy, and you have the doctor's note. You have the orders. You have all the latest cookbooks. You have the supplies, the produce, everything. And you're like, I've got my, I got my week planned out. But then your mind, you start to battle. You're running late. And you drive right by Taco Bell. And you all know they got nacho fries back. And you stop. And you know what you need to do. But you just don't do it the battles that we have with ourselves, You know, this morning we're gonna continue in our series on Romans, and Romans chapter seven is what we're gonna look at today. Now, last, if you, if you know much about Romans chapter seven, it's pretty well known 
for one single verse right in the middle. In fact, when we read that in just a moment, you're gonna be like, I've, I've heard that before about a hundred times. I've lived that before about a hundred times or more or on a daily basis. So right in the middle is our focus. And we're in the middle of a section where Romans chapter six, seven, and eight all deal with sin. You know, the glamorous subject of sin that we love to come to church and hear about the reality of sin. Now, if you were with us last week, Pastor Chris had you stand up for the entire chapter of Romans chapter six. You remember, it's a holiday weekend, folks. I'm gonna go real easy on you. For our text today, we're gonna look at one verse. So that's all I'm gonna make you stand up for today. So if you're willing and able, I'm gonna have you stand where you are and we're gonna, I'm gonna read that verse for you. And then we're gonna use the rest of our time looking at that verse through the lens of all of Romans chapter seven. Here's what it is. You know, you, you're probably very familiar. It says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. There it is, you can be seated. We always ask God to bless the hearing and the reading of his word. So as we unpack that verse through the lens of chapter seven, there's so much good stuff in there. There really is, and we're gonna look at that through a variety of different ways. And I studied and I started reading and I started looking at the whole picture of what the Apostle Paul was saying. And a challenge for you, this is a little side note for you. I'm gonna challenge you to do something this week. Read Romans chapter six, seven, and eight in one sitting. Just read it straight through as if it were one continual thought. I did that a few times when preparing for the message. You get a whole different perspective of what the Apostle Paul is saying. So do that sometime this week, maybe on the 4th of July when you have nothing else to do. It is very illuminating to our text. And so I went to Romans chapter seven. I was like, I tried to outline the entire chapter. And I was doing the, the typical pe- the preacher thing of looking for rhyming words and what's this do and how's they, they, all, they all start with the same letter. And I really couldn't come up with anything. And I stumbled across a great outline of the entire chapter. And it's from Pastor Tim Keller. Many of you are familiar with Pastor Tim Keller. He's an, he's an amazing preacher, an amazing author. Sadly, he passed away about a month and a half ago. Amazing man of the faith. And I figured after I read that and I kind of looked at it, I can't do any better. So I'm gonna give him credit for this. This is his outline of the chapter. But we're gonna do it a little bit different. We're gonna take it out of order and not go chronologically one through 25 and I'll explain to you a little more as we get into it. Here's our outline if you're taking notes or if you're writing things down. Verses seven through 13 of chapter seven describe and take a look at the battle that can't be won. Verses 14 through 25 describe and take a look at the battle that can't be lost. And the very very first six verses, that takes a look at the transition between these two battles. Now, as we begin, we're gonna jump right into the first part of that, verses seven through 13, the battle that can't be won. Now, as we begin, I do need to start just a little bit in the very first verse of our text from Roman, I'm sorry, from Romans chapter seven, verse one. And it's important that we do that because we need to understand who the apostle Paul was talking to. It says this, 
Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those that know the law. The apostle Paul is speaking to Jews and Gentiles. He's speaking to a crowd that knows the law and specifically those who know the law but have also come into a relationship with Jesus as we're gonna learn just a little bit later in the chapter. He's speaking to people who are knowledgeable about the old way of living, the old covenant, the old agreements, if you will. And as we unpack this entire section, everything that Paul talks about is in the past tense. Because the Apostle Paul is saying, this is how things used to be. This is how I used to live. This is how we used to, how the old agreement, the old covenant, this is the old way of doing things. And he also opens up his soul and he shares with empathy those who are listening. Because Paul's saying, I am one of you. I lived this way, I did this the whole different time. He says in Romans 7, 7, he says, what shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what, a, what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known what coveting was had, the law, had it coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And with that statement, Paul reveals that the law is a battle that cannot be won because the Apostle Paul grew up living, knowing, studying, breathing the law. There's different accounts throughout the New Testament where the Apostle Paul talks about his past. He talks about growing up uh, uh, as, as a student of the law. But one of my favorite passages comes from the book of Philippians. Here's what he says in Philippians. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. The Apostle Paul says, you think you were good, I was better. And so he begins to unpack what it was like to live under the law. And he starts, very, he starts at that very first section and he goes through the commandments and he's like one through nine, check, check. Guys, I'm real good at this. Don't kill anyone, I've got that one covered. Obey my parents, yep, got that one. No other gods before you, no problem. But then he gets to commandment number 10, do not covet. And he's like, wait a minute. Just saying that out loud, what's my mind starting to do? It's starting to wander and think about other people's stuff. And I can imagine that some people in the audience were, in, that were hearing that were like, yeah. You know, I was real, real happy with my flock that I had, but I can't stop thinking about my neighbor's flock. I mean, my barn's great, but that barn over there has like double garage doors that open up on each side. You can get the cattle in really, really fast, and you start to think about other things. Uh, and he says this in Romans, the very next verse in verse eight. He said, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, the sin was dead. 
And Paul emphasizes with, empathizes with all of those around him, those who knew the law, and he continues to unpack that reality. And he says something that maybe you're even wondering at this very moment upon hearing that. He says in verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul is saying that the law is, reveals what sin is. The law doesn't create sin. A couple chapters earlier in Romans chapter five, we read this. Sin was in the world before the law was given. So Paul's not saying to everybody there that the law creates sin. The law illuminates sin. It reveals our need for salvation. But it has, the law has no power to save because we need a redemptive act. The price and the value of sin is the same as it was there, the same as it is today, whether it be the old agreement, the old covenant, the old way of living, or the new covenant, the new way of living, the new agreement, or whether it is today. Romans chapter six, verse 23, we talked about this last week. For the wages of sin is death. Sin, the price of sin is the same as it was and the same as it is today. It's death. The law defines sin. Without it, it's lifeless. Let me illustrate it this way. One of my favorite traditions to do when I go to church camp is to play Foursquare. I grew up playing Foursquare. I grew up loving Foursquare. If you're not familiar with Foursquare, it's a fun game that kids play and you can go through it really quick. And uh, in fact, for the last 18, 19 years, that has been a staple at Camp Allendale to play Foursquare. We loved it so much here in our children's ministry that we put two Foursquare courts in Upper Bibleopolis. Every week we would come into church, kids would be playing Foursquare. Kids would be, and it was so, so good. About three and a half years or three years ago when the pandemic hit, something happened. Our kids stopped playing Foursquare. Now I know why initially that happened, but I don't know why it never picked up. You go upstairs now, you will never see anyone playing Foursquare. They just don't do it anymore. And so for three plus years, we have part of a generation that has lost the knowledge of how to play Foursquare. They don't have the experience and they don't have the information and no one's ever told them, this is how you play Foursquare. Now you might not think that's a big deal, but this is on full display just a couple weeks ago at Camp Allendale. It was absolute madness. It was chaos. The kids in Foursquare, they were coming up with rules, they were coming up with terms, they were calling different plays, they're like, you can do bomb pops, cherry picks, you can do popcorn, you can go behind your back. Meanwhile, myself, who knows and studied the law of Foursquare, <laughs> would sit in my chair in disbelief and I would shake my head and I was like, this generation has lost the law. <laughs> Occasionally, I would get out of my chair and I would walk over to the four square court and I'm like, children, listen, come, come to me. Let me explain the law of four square to you. You get to hit the ball one time, 
underhand on the serve, outside lines are in, inside lines are out, it's very simple. And I would step back. And most of the times that went very good. And kids were like, oh, now we understand. We're, that illuminated the law for us. Until the last time I did it and a girl came up to me and said, Pastor Chris, we're sorry. Nobody plays that way anymore. <laughs> That's an old way of playing. And I just had to step back. But you see, I illuminated the law of Foursquare because no one knew the rules. That's what the law did. The law illuminated sin, illuminated what was right and what was wrong. And the reality is this is a battle that can't be won because it's a system by which we will never be good enough. We will never do enough. We will never earn acceptance. The Apostle Paul says, look at me. I am the best of the best. I've checked all of the boxes. I've done all of the things I've studied, but it's still not enough. You think you're good. I was better. The law can't save you. There needs to be redemption. In verses 14 through, through 25 go on to describe the battle that can't be lost. Paul makes a shift in his language. He makes a shift in his tone. Everything that he says in this section is in the present tense. It's as if we speak in, guys, everyone here, that's how it used to be. That is the old way of living. This is the new way. This is the new agreement. He says this starting at verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, the battle in our mind. In 2018, there was an artist who came up with a plan and a scheme to sell one of his paintings. You've probably heard of the guy, you've probably seen the painting. The artist was Bansky, and he, he masterminded the sale of one of his most famous paintings, Girl with Balloon. It's a very familiar picture, and it went to auction. But before it did, it was ready to go for sale, and it's right there hanging on the wall. It's got this gold, big gold frame around it. It's ready to go, and at the very moment that the auction sells, the price goes down for $1.4 million. I heard that figure, and I looked at that picture, I'm like, really? That's a lot, that is a lot of money. The moment the gavel went down, what no one in the audience realized at that time is that the artist had arranged for something to happen. The print went into the frame which had a shredder built in on the bottom. And so the picture went down right at that moment and became, began to cut and destroy itself. As you can imagine, everyone was shocked. The security rushed in, they grabbed the painting, nobody knew what was going on. They pulled it away, and they didn't realize that even in that moment, there was a built-in mechanism of self-sabotage. Now, all of those security guards, the irony of that picture is those security guards were there to protect that painting from everyone else. What they didn't realize was they needed to protect that painting from itself because it was already set to destroy itself. And that reminds me a little bit of the picture of what we have going on in our minds because we have that built in as well and we're gonna talk about that in just a little bit. 
That is better described by the Apostle Paul in verse 21. Maybe you can relate to this picture or this verse. It says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And I feel like if we were to illustrate that verse, it's going to look like this. You've seen a picture similar to that. If you've got the devil on one side and an angel on the other, you've got the good and the evil at battle with each other. Now the reason that Paul writes verses 14 through 25 is because of those first 13 verses. A look at the old system, the old way of living. Now here is the truth for you and the truth for me and the truth for everybody listening at the time the apostle Paul said that. Just because we live in a new agreement Just because we live in a new life and a new way of doing things, just because we have been provided the redemptive act through the death of Jesus and we have died to our old self, that doesn't mean those temptations, the sin, and those battles disappear. We are at war and an inner battle goes on. That which is dead is still there every step of the way. And thus the verse, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do, but I do that, which I hate to do. The law provides diagnosis. It provides knowledge. It defines and outlines sin. But Jesus is the one that resolves that relationship. We read about it in Romans chapter six this way, in verse 14. It says, the sin that the sin for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace and in galatians we read i have been crucified with christ i no longer live but christ lives in me the life i now live in the body i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me A few weeks ago, we went to pick up a prescription at Walgreens, my wife and I, and we went through the drive-through. And I don't know why, but I don't guess we've been to Walgreens in a real long time. But we came up to the window and we asked for our prescription and she asked us to verify our address. And she said, hey, do do you still live on Harding Street? And we looked at each other and we're like completely puzzled. We're like, Harding Street? And it took us about five to seven seconds for it to click away. Whoa, Harding Street, that's our Florida house. We don't live in our Florida house. We haven't lived in our Florida house for about 19 years. That is the old us. We don't live there anymore. We live in a Greenwood house. This is our new house. This is our new residence. This is where we now live. That's the picture of our life. When we give our life to Jesus, we have an old life. We have an old way of living. We have our old self. But when we're in Christ, we have a new life. We have a new residence. We have a new address. And our life is in Jesus. And the battle is this. Between those which is alive and that which was dead, there is a battle that continually goes on. 
You know, when I was a kid, I used to think that when I gave my life to Jesus, I grew up in church. I, some of you as well might have a similar story about just growing up in church. And I grew up, I grew up with this thought that when I gave my life to Jesus, it was like me coming with this pot of water and in the water it's completely cold and it's lifeless. And then I have the stove. When I gave my life to Jesus, it was like putting my life on his and he would just warm up and I would come to temperature and it would be great and I would, I would be surrounded in the warmth and the love of Jesus. But then when I disobeyed, when I sinned, when I broke my relationship with him and when I lost my, my passion for Jesus, it would be like taking that water and moving it off the burner and the temperature would start to go down. And then I'd go to church and I'd put it back on and it would start to rise again. And it would be this, my whole life would be defined by this constant temperature of up and down. Folks, that is a false way to look at our relationship with Jesus. The reality is we have a brand new heart. We have a brand new home. We have a brand new life. When we accept Jesus and when we live in Jesus, it's not our old way of life getting better and worse and better and worse. It's our old way of life is dead. It is there, it is dead. And inside of us, we have a new life. We are made a new creation in Jesus. But you and I both know that the temptation is there. That which was dead rears its ugly head. But the reality that we've been redeemed is the reason this is the battle that can't be lost. In the book of Colossians, it says it this way. Colossians chapter two, starting at verses 13 through 16. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Knowing the battle, we are in a battle that can't be lost, changes the fight, it really does. The cravings of the flesh, that's the old me, that's the dead me, that is not the renewed me, that is not the alive in Christ me, and that certainly is not the future me. You might have wondered this, why does sin not taste as good as it used to? That's because that's no longer an expression of the real you. The real you is alive in Jesus. And you may have wondered this as well, why do I struggle so much? Why do I still deal with lust, jealousy, doubt, greed, hate, pride, so many others? Why are there times my passion for Jesus seems so low? Paul empathizes with those around him and God hears that cry of desperation. And at the end of chapter three, or I'm sorry, the, at the end of the chapter seven, Paul gives three quick points. And he says this, starting at verse 24, he said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is sub subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, I am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law 
of sin. And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul responds with this in three ways, with honesty, with humility, and dependence on Jesus. I'm undeserving, I can't save myself, and my life is found in Jesus Christ. And now we get to the very beginning of the chapter, which is the transition between these two battles. Now the reason I didn't start this way is because Paul outlines or defines the reality for you and me and everyone listening in those first six verses. I didn't wanna start with the conclusion of the story, but that's what the Apostle Paul does. And I wanna read all of this for you today. It says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, and that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a man, a, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. If then, so then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. See, that would have been a great sermon intro. You've been like, what? So in light of the rest of the chapter, in, in light of whatever the other things we've talked about, listen to these two verses. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within us. So we bore fruit for death, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve a new way, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. The apostle Paul lays out an example and an illustration of marriage. He says, once there is death, that contract is canceled, it is no longer valid. A woman is bound to her husband, of course, as long as her husband is alive. If he dies, she is released from that agreement. She is then free to enter into another agreement with another husband. It would be the same as if Paul were saying, we were once married to sin. We were under the contract. We were under the power of sin. But when Jesus died, he canceled that contract and freed us to enter into a new contract, into a new agreement with him. And when that happens, Christian obedience becomes based not on externally imposed obedience of written laws or codes, but in an inner allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he lays out the contrast throughout the rest of the chapter. As I read Romans chapter seven, I can relate to Paul's words. I can relate with that verse that we began with. I don't understand what I do. What I wanna do, I don't. But I do the things that I hate to do. The civil war, the battle in my mind, the battle in our minds, the battle with what was dead and the battle with what is currently alive. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? I wanna give you three real short answers. The first thing is, 
Focus on the battle that can't be lost. Jesus has taken away the consequence of sin. Jesus has taken away the punishment for sin. He took our punishment for us. The second thing we need to do is make a shift from a civil war between that which is dead and that which is alive into a strategic battle. Focus our attention, focus on our battle with that which is only with what that which was dead. The old way of thinking, the old way of living, the old way of being. And the final one is to focus on what gives God the glory. We read in Philippians chapter four this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If you remember back to that painting and the picture of the girl with the balloon that went into the shredder, at the moment it was purchased for $1.4 million, it went through the frame of self-destruction and self-sabotage. I can imagine the horror. I can imagine the looks on the people's face. I can't imagine what the feeling was like for the person who gave that winning bid when it went through. I'm sure what everyone in the audience thought was that painting is ruined. It's been destroyed. Its value is lost. An update on that story about a year ago, that exact same painting went to auction, exactly how it was found in the frame, destroyed, tattered, and cut. This time, the auction went for over $20 million. This is a great picture about what Jesus does for us because he takes us. He takes us in our brokenness, he takes us in our destruction. He takes us in our battles. He takes us in our, he takes us, he redeems us. And he says, you're worth it. Your value is not in what you do. Your value is in what I did for you. Your value is because I love you. I have redeemed you. I have saved you. Our value is secure with Jesus. And that folks is why that's the battle that can't be lost.